Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to another interview on the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about my scholarship and background at rajbalkaran.com. But more importantly, I have the pleasure of speaking today with Dr. Nathan McGovern. He is Assistant Professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Nathan, it's a pleasure to have you on the channel today. Thank you for having me, Raj. Um, And... It's quite the book we're looking at today. Uh, as you can see from the link, it's entitled The Snake and the Mongoose, The Emergence of Identity in Early Indian Religion. Now, while I would love to jump into this, this, this idea of the snake and the mongoose, maybe say a little bit about your background for our listeners. My background? Well, um, I got my PhD at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, um, where I did the dissertation work that became this book. Um, background beyond that, I don't know, I grew up in Memphis. I uh, went to college at Franklin and Marshall uh, College, small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. Then I went to grad school and then went back to teach at FNM and then had a series of jobs while I was uh, working my three way, way through the job market um, before I ended up at uh, UW-Whitewater, where I am today. Um, so- so our listeners may or may not realize, but it is a very tight job market uh, yes. in our times. So yes. no small feat. Um, uh, employers at the academy are, are spoiled in terms of the candidates. They can. So it's, it's yeah, it's a buyer's market. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, remind me again when you finish the PhD. Uh, I believe officially it, it finished in 2013. Got it. So I... I can relate in so far as I finished, uh, I defended in 2015. Okay. And I also had the, the, so the book that came out this year was also the dissertation. Oh, book. So, oh congratulations um, to you too. Oh, thank you. You know yeah. what, actually, um, at some point, um, uh, Marshall, who, who runs the, the New Books Network, um, mm-hmm. he suggested that I should flip roles and have someone interview me one day. For my <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, uh, The Snake and the Mongoose. Um, I don't know where to start. It's, it's, it's such that it's such a rich book and it's such a paradigm shifting book potentially for, for most of our colleagues that it's almost worth um, unpacking what you don't argue, <laughs> what you don't write about <laughs> okay. so, so that folks can understand um, what it is that's revolutionary about the book. So, so the snake and the manga. So tell us about that title perhaps first of all. Yeah, I came up with that title. Um, during my long uh, job search, I was in Germany that year doing a postdoc on an unrelated topic. And uh, I, I think I was putting together the, the, uh, the, you know, the book proposal for the, uh, for the publisher um, and was working on a chapter and, and realized that this <clears throat> famous um, passage from the um, Indian grammarian uh, Patanjali that I had read about way back when I was an undergrad um, didn't actually exist. <laughs> um, so the passage in question that I, that I had read about in several sources supposedly was that Patanjali says that the relationship between a Brahmin and a Shramana or an ascetic is like that between the snake and a mongoose. And so when I was looking at Patanjali, I realized he doesn't actually say that. <laughs> he, um, he does use the example of uh, the Brahman and the Shramana, but he never says anything about a snake and a mongoose, not at least at that point in his, his grammar. Um, and this kind of struck me because, uh, you know, I'd seen it, a, you know, several uh, scholarly and sort of pedagogical sources, this trotted out, this supposed passage trotted out to show that um, 
you know, the Shramana movements were intrinsically opposed to the Brahmins. And this is, this is supposed to like explain the origins of Indian religions, that there was this great conflict between two major religious groups in ancient India. Um, and, and, you know, that, that the imagery is very vivid, right? Of a snake and a mongoose. You can imagine, you know, the, the way they fight with each other and so forth. Uh, and, and then I realized that this was not actually the case. And I, I thought this, this, this needs to be the, the image for my book, because this is emblematic of exactly the uh, the model of Indian religions that I'm criticizing. This this model that um, that the major Indian religions of Buddhism, Jainism, and, and Hinduism arose out of a major conflict between uh, the Shramanas and the Brahmins. So maybe um, it's it's a, it's an incredible image, and I think obviously quite apt uh, for the argument you're making. Um, which is really that um, this is uh, this is a, a, a trope sort of this is a misconception that that, that uh, the, the shramanas and the the brahmanas whomever they were if ever they were uh, weren't at odds in this manner. So let me sort of maybe share uh, very very quickly thirty thousand foot view how mm, we or at least I generally teach say intro Hinduism mm. and then that may be a good um, that may be good context for our listeners in terms of what's different about this book. Now, I have this idea that I call the Dharmic double helix in that there are these two strands of Dharma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, uh, I may be entirely educated during this interview and I may not teach it this way anymore. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) However, um, I tend to teach Hinduism in terms of this 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 entity with these two impulses that are quite different but woven in together and the first impulse is what i call vedic religion in terms of fire mm-hmm. sacrifice caste system uh, mm-hmm. progeny world affirmation mm-hmm. and this other impulse i consider as um being folded back in from the shramana tradition the tradition of renouncers who may or may not be forest dwellers who mm. who sort of mm. subscribe to other philosophical notions and pursue uh metaphysical realities and uh they, they seek out a teacher and sort of the, the holy man the sadhu sort of figure that becomes the face of mm. hinduism even in, in modern times right. and how i think of it um is that there is this this other religious impulse in the shramana movement that eventually coalesces into what we call Hinduism, right? Creating this double helix and alternatively what we call now Jainism and Buddhism. But at the time of this religious movement, the distinctions between Jainism and Buddhism and Hinduism are are tenuous at best if if existent. Now, uh, what would you say about teaching Hinduism this way? Yeah, I don't think that's a completely false model at all. it's certainly many scholars have seen there to be a tension either in Hinduism specifically or in uh, Indian religions as a whole between those two general impulses. Um, I think where questions arise is how exactly did those two strands come about? Um, and is it sufficient to sort of attribute them to a Brahmanical tradition and a Sharmanic tradition, which I think is the way you characterized it. Um, and I think depending on your purposes, um, you know, it, it either may be sufficient or, or maybe not sufficient. I mean, I think if you're talking about, um, classical Hinduism or the middle ages in India or, you know, anything, anything sufficiently far removed from the time period that I'm talking about, which is in ancient India. Um, it, you know, that, that sort of a model I think is, is, is not terribly problematic. These, you, you, just in terms of scale, you're, you're sort of removed from the, the issue of, of how the strands came about. Um, but if we're talking about ancient India, that, that's, where I, that's where I sort of critique that model, um, at least insofar as the model Pre, is, supposes that there's a, a, a hard and fast distinction between the Brahmanical and the Shramanic traditions. Um, I mean, the way I usually characterize the model that I'm, that I'm criticizing is, is uh, one in which Shramanism arose 
principally in antagonism or opposition to Brahmanism. And, and that I think is, is a flawed model. That's, that's what I'm criticizing. The idea that, that there's some, some, there's something fundamentally separate about those two strands. I mean, it, it's well though these two strands become interwoven in Hinduism itself. And I, I guess I would argue that that was, that they were always interwoven uh, in some sense. Mm, so, so really this, the, the snake and the mongoose is really proposing an entirely new methodology for understanding um, ancient India and understanding these strands of what we now, uh, as you would say, anachronistically think of as Brahmanism versus Buddhism versus Jainism. Mm. Um, so maybe, maybe tell us the main uh, takeaway, the main theme in terms of what you're proposing versus the accepted sure. scholar, scholarly view. Sure. sure. So my, <clears throat> excuse me, my argument is that um, whereas typically it's been argued at, as I said, that, that, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jainism arose out of a conflict, an intrinsic conflict, uh, an intrinsic opposition between Brahmanism and uh, the Sharamana movements. Um, I argue that, uh, in fact, um, there was a conflict in ancient India, but the, the conflict was not between uh, a Sharamana movement and a, and, a, and, a, and a Brahmin movement that were somehow intrinsically separate, but rather among different religious groups who were um, contesting the category Brahmin. So, so what's, what's the difference then? The difference is uh, whether we see Shramana and Brahmin as intrinsically separate or not. And what I argue is that we shouldn't see them that way. That most groups in ancient India um, were engaging in some sort of shramana activity, that is some sort of renunciate activity uh, that involved celibacy. Um, and all of them, I argue, were claiming to be Brahmins. And I think with some justification. In other words, that, that you can trace their practices, their beliefs, you know, in each case, uh, back to earlier Vedic texts. Um, uh, it, it, and and in, and in particular, the, the practice of um, uh, brahmacharya, so brahmacharya, the practice of renunciate celibacy, that this was claimed to be a, a way to become a Brahmin, in fact. And so, so on that basis, there, there was some justification for different groups you know, claiming to, to be Brahmins through their shramana activities. Um, and then there were, there were, on the other hand, uh, there was one group or, or, or one uh, set of groups that were reactionary in this respect, and they uh, ended up arrogating the category Brahmin to themselves on a different basis, not on the basis of celibate renunciation, but actually on the basis of birth. And, and they did so uh, because they uh, were champions of householdership. Um, so, Nate, yeah. so, so Nathan, would you say then, uh, so two questions I have. One, mm -hmm. I, well, I have many, but I have two that I'll ask. Uh, for the sake of our audience, would you say that, um, so what you're saying is that this, this, um, the religious practice of celibacy of Brahmacharya, mm -hmm. that it, in your view, stems from, um, even within Vedic religion? Uh, yes, I think that there's certainly, Brahmacharya seems to have a very old, uh, um, basis uh for being interpreted as as celibacy and um yeah i think that that they're definitely and this is something that i explore in my book that there are there is at least precedent for general renunciate practices in the vedas i, I don't think i'm particularly unique in in saying that um yeah right. go ahead. and so what would you say about the tension between the householder and the ascetic in terms of your argument yeah, so many scholars have talked about this this tension. Um, I mean, we talk about like the inner conflict of tradition, for example. Um, uh, in my argument, um, that tension is front and center in explaining um, how, as I put it, how the snake and the mongoose came about. But by which I mean uh, how the opposition between uh, the Sharamana and the Brahmin came about. In other words as these different uh, quote-unquote Brahmanical groups, that is groups that were claiming to be Brahmins, uh, were 
debating the role that celibacy and general renunciatory practices should play. Um, there became a sort of dividing line between those who were committed to those practices and those who were opposed to them. And, and as I was saying earlier, uh, those who were opposed to them, who I identify with the uh, authors of the Dharma Sutras, um, they uh, basically made the argument that you, you have to produce children and, and therefore the householder life uh, is the only acceptable lifestyle. Um, and in the process, uh, they wanted to separate, uh, I argue, um, Brahminhood from celibacy because they saw celibacy as being so problematic. And one of the ways they did that was by, uh, was by formalizing the Varna system. And in the Varna system, of course, Brahminhood is conferred on the basis of birth, not on the basis of anything else. Um, and thus by irrigating that title to themselves, eventually other groups ended up sort of ceding the title and, and thus there was this bifurcation between Brahmins and Shramanas. And so the Shramana movement, the impulse to give up um, caste or the Vedic uh, sacrificial religion mm -hmm. or progeny, um, you do view that as a separate impulse from the from the core Vedic religion, correct? Or do you actually view that as perhaps an evolution? This image I use in the book to um, express what I imagine going on here, and, and I admit that it, at this point I'm getting a little bit speculative, but, but uh, in the uh, concluding chapter, um, what I imagine in, say, around the 5th century BCE, which would have been probably when uh, the Buddha and Mahavira lived, uh, that there were there was an expansive set of loosely defined Brahmin groups, by which I mean groups that claim to be Brahmins. Um, and some of them were more, shall we say, traditional. Um, some were more avant-garde. I take the, the, uh, the, J, the, the groups that became the Jains and the Buddhists to be the, those on the avant-garde. They were taking ideas that were, say, found in the late Vedas and the Upanishads, ideas about rebirth, uh, to their logical extreme and sort of running with it. And I don't see it actually so much as being a matter of necessarily deliberately abandoning older practices as just not really being interested in them anymore. I mean, I think in some cases they were deliberately abandoned, but in other cases they just had sort of become... Um, you know, uh, uh, out of fashion or out of, you know, they just were not uh, really relevant anymore. And so they just, they, like I said, they were on the avant-garde, so they took ideas and started running with them. Um, I, I see, uh, you know, more traditional groups as being kind of like um, the forest-dwelling ascetic groups. I think that these were, were groups that were, you know, I mean, going along with whatever uh, sort of changes happened to be happening, happened to be going on in the religious landscape, um, uh, but not really pushing things like the avant-garde was. Um, and then on the other extreme were uh, the reactionary groups. And these are the groups that um, were actually, I would argue, innovative as reactionaries are, innovative in uh, uh, creating, uh, although in their mind, defending an old order that probably to a certain, exist, uh, certain extent only existed in their minds. So certainly, certainly it makes sense that the what we call now the Jain and Buddhist movements would have been the more avant-garde, as you say, in right. terms of pushing right. pushing the envelope of this of this uh, religious frontier. Right. Right. Now, not within within this milieu, not those who are more avant-garde, but maybe those who would be um, more conservative, but yet within this ideology of moksha karma samsara so 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 this mm -hmm. is something i'd like to ask you about mm. and, and most most non-scholars of hinduism and particularly practitioners mm -hmm. um don't uh, don't realize that the very idea of of karmic theory of rebirth mm -hmm. of 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 salvation of moksha of liberation that these are that this ideology um, enters the fore in the late Upanishadic period, mm. centuries mm -hmm. leading up to or contemporaneous with the rise of Buddhism or Buddhist right. thought. Right. Now, 
this this religious thrust, would you see this as an evolute of Vedic religion? And of course, for our listeners, obviously not not for, for your sake, I'd say that Vedic religion is is um, uh, an analog to say ancient Greek or Roman religion, where you have a pantheon of deities, right? Pleased through sacrifice, and then you want prosperity on earth, and you want heaven, and it's a it's a fundamentally different apparatus. Mm. So then. How, how would you square the fact that even those who aren't so avant-garde, who adopt this ideology, um, still perhaps radically undercut Vedic religion? Mm, I see. Um, yeah, I, I, I do agree that, that this is something that was uh, an evolute of Vedic religion, but something that was you know fundamentally new compared to, say, the oldest strands of Vedic religion. In other words, the, the idea of karma and rebirth and so forth, that these were the result of um, speculations that really didn't come to a head until the Upanishadic period. Um, and, and yeah, it seems that this avant-garde represented by the Jains and Buddhists, that they really ran with those ideas. Um, and ultimately, even though I think there was uh, a backlash against those movements, you know, from more reactionary sort of elements. Uh, nevertheless, they um, ended up becoming s standard for Indian religions in general. Um, the way I express this in the book is that uh, even though, say, the the what what I call the neo Brahmin. Uh, the, the proponents of neo-Brahmanism, that is the authors of the Dharma Sutras, um, were successful in arrogating the title Brahman to themselves. Um, they were not successful at staving off renunciatory values uh, or the worldview that accompanies them, which is the worldview of, of karma and rebirth. Um, and uh, you can see that, especially in terms of the renunciatory values in um, you know, the laws of Manu, where the ashrama system gets changed from a, a series of four options, which in the Dharma Sutras are all pretty much rejected except for the householder, to instead a series of four stages of life, um, which, and, and I'm not the first to say this, Oliva was the one who did the classic study on this, uh, was a way of accommodating renunciatory lifestyles into a you know, Hindu Dharmic framework. Um, basically, the idea being Yes, you can do celibacy and you can do renunciation, but have your babies first. Um, so, so they're relegated to old age. And so then there's this progression that leads to the lifestyles in which you would eventually pursue moksha. Um, so yeah, it is, it is a bit of a, an irony, I guess, uh, if you could think of it that way, that there was, the, there was a um, you know, development of new ideas within the tradition. Um, they sort of end up going in their own direction and being rejected by um, the more conservative elements of the tradition, but then they ended up becoming part of the tradition anyway. Yeah, it's this walking contradiction where you can't really dispense with the social ideology of of householding, mm. and you can't dispense with the the, the 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 spiritual supremacy of sort of this this uh, stoic foregoing of, mm. of children of, of of pleasure, and, and mm. this is the walking contradiction. This is. Um, I do it synchronically, not diachronically, but this is mm. why I feel the epics and the Puranas, the mythological mm. texts are replete with kings. You know, if the king is the glorified householder and end up in exile, uh, talking yeah. to forest-dwelling um, <laughs> ascetics, and uh, the king in forest exile, I think, is a, is a mythological encapsulation of exactly what you're talking about. Mm. Um, so fascinating. There's so much here. Um, so uh, tell us, tell us about uh, because it's sort of lodged in a specific history, and, and our listeners may or may not know particularly the what the Dharma Shastras do. But tell us about neo Brahmanism. What's your, what do you mean when you refer to the neo the neo Brahmins? So neo Brahmanism, uh, it, it is my term, um, but it's not uh, originally my idea. So I, I got the idea from Johannes Bronkhorst, uh, another scholar of early India. He calls it the new Brahmanism. I just prefer, I just found it more convenient to to switch the, the terminology to neo Brahmanism, but it's the same idea. Um, the, the, what he calls the new Brahmanism is uh, a sort of 
a revamped Brahmanism in the light of the rise of Buddhism and other Shramana religions um, that sought to remake it in very specific, remake itself in, in very specific ways uh, so as to um, successfully compete for patronage and so forth. And, and, and he argues in, um, uh, he has several books that are related to this, but the, the main one I believe would be uh, Buddhism in the Shadow of Brahmanism uh, is that, uh, that certain things that we take for granted about Brahmanism or Hinduism were actually um, uh, adopted um, in this period, that is in the period in, in the centuries after, say, the reign of the Mauryas, who, you know, especially under Ashoka, were known for patronizing um, uh, Sharamana groups. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so, so this involves, uh, among other things, um, uh, a, a sort of uh, reimagining of the past in a particular Brahmanical image and, and a, uh, a particular valorization of uh, the Varna system, uh, the use of Sanskrit, uh, the supremacy of Brahmins and so forth. So this would be, this would be in your view, primarily anachronistic in that this is sort of a projection. The idea that Brahmanism um, predates Buddhism is, is, is sort of just assumed by scholarship, but, but right. is interrogated by your work. Yeah, I have a discussion of this in the introduction. Um, in a sense, yeah, I, I do critique the idea that Brahmanism precedes uh, Buddhism. Uh, now, you can read that in different ways. I mean, there's a sort of naive way you, you could read that and say, well, you know, Nathan McGovern, you're completely wrong. That's ridiculous. Uh, because, of course, there were Brahmins before there were Buddhists. So in that sort of just very literal sense, Brahmanism does precede Buddhism. Uh, what I critique is the idea that, that just because there were Brahmins before there were Buddhists, therefore Brahmanism as an ideology metahistorically precedes Buddhism. And uh, that's what I critique because, because I think that um, it, the, the very fact that there were Brahmins before Buddhists uh, can be used to, to leap to the conclusion that therefore, whatever we imagine Brahmanism to be, that somehow precedes Buddhism. And, and that uh, is what I see as problematic. And, and I don't think, you know, that I'm being completely innovative here. I think that there have been several scholars, uh, including Bronkhorst, others like Olivelle, who have who have shown that a lot of the things that we associate with Brahmanism, a lot of the texts that we associate with Brahmanism, in fact, post-date Buddhism. Um, and so this has actually been a, an exciting time for scholarship, realizing the extent to which um, a lot of the things that we take for granted about, uh, you know, Brahmanical ideology, that, that, they're, that they're actually um, a, a bit later than we once imagined. So uh, for the sake of our listeners, what are some of the things that are taken for granted in the scholarship about Brahmanical ideology of this period? Uh, yeah, so I mean, certain key components would be like uh, the ashrama system, which, which in fact, I mean, as Olivelle showed, uh, developed over several centuries, first showed up in the Dharma Sutras, um, which were probably not written until about the time of Buddhism and then shortly thereafter. Uh, and then was changed, as I described in the Laws of Manu, probably in the early centuries, eight, or CE, rather. Um, the Varna system, which I argue in my book, uh, has a, an antiquity of sorts, but I think is a formalized system um, in which you, you actually say, okay, there are four, four classes that are named, and they are subsumed under the category Varna, uh, and they're explicitly said to... Um, be ranked according to birth or be determined by birth. Uh, that I think is also something that, that first, you know, in a, in, a, in a very explicit sense shows up in the Dharma Sutras. So around the time of Buddhism or shortly thereafter. Um, and, uh, uh, and also the, um, uh, the use of Sanskrit. Uh, this has been shown uh, by Pollock and others to have um, Although having a, a sort of continuous pedigree, that the, the the widespread use of Sanskrit postdates Buddhism, uh, and then uh, last of all, something that was important to um, uh, to the new Brahmanism or, or neo Brahmanism uh, is an emphasis on householdership. Although that, of course, is something that was sort of 
um, negotiated over the course of the tradition later on, so, such that there became a, 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 you know, as we've been discussing, a, a, a continual tension between householder values and renunciant values. Hmm. So maybe take us, maybe take us um, into a couple of the chapters of your book. You start off with okay. some synchronic work, and then you do some diachronic work, yeah. and maybe if we can. We can, in, in, in as accessible a manner as we can, present some of the evidence that, that you present mm-hmm. for this thesis. Sure. So you just want me to go, go through yeah, the chapters? Maybe, maybe first, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe first mention a couple of the, the textual accounts and the synchronic um, sources, you, uh, synchronic um, methodologies you used, and then maybe we can go from there. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, so... You know, after the introduction, which is the themes that we've just been talking about, and then chapter two, Sake of the Mongoose of the Horizon of Indian History, I just talk mainly about certain uh, historical issues uh, about dating and so forth. Um, chapter three, Taming the Snake and the Mongoose of Indian History. Um, that's a more uh, synchronic kind of study in which... Um, uh, basically, I'm just trying to demonstrate that um, in, in the evidence that we have, uh, even after the point where I think that there started to be a, uh, uh, because the, the issue is that it's difficult to date texts. And so I admit that and I say, you know, uh, all scholars of ancient India sort of are like pulling their hair out trying to figure out how to date texts and it's, it's impossible to do with any, you know, accuracy. Uh, uh, you know, down to the decade or even the century in many cases. Um, so, so let's just ask, even for, for texts that may be coming after the time when Shramanas and Brahmas were considered somewhat separate, can we find any evidence of the categories being treated as not oppositional? And what I, what I show is that, in fact, you can find lots of evidence of this. In And what I mainly look at is uh, the Pali Canon, so the scriptures, uh, the early scriptures of Buddhism, and in the edicts of uh, the Emperor Ashoka, uh, and show that usually when the categories Brahman and Shramana, so th- this is sort of a set phrase, Shramanas and Brahmins. This is found in frequently in the in the Pali Canon and in the edicts of Ashoka, uh, not used usually in an oppositional sense, um, and that might be even after there was sort of a sense that maybe these are separate groups, but actually the, the, the way that they're used is not oppositional. They, they're, they're usually used as a single unit. And there was Shramanas and Brahmas sort of breathlessly, like this is a single category of, of religious practitioners. Um, then chapters four and five, I sort of present the case, which I've already been uh, doing earlier in this interview, um, that we can understand all the groups of ancient India as Brahmins, just in their own sense. So chapter four, I talk about the Brahmin as a celibate renunciant. That's, so that's where I uh, present the argument that, um, in fact, uh, early Jains and early Buddhists claim to be Brahmins, uh, and that we can take them at their word. Usually the way this has been interpreted is that they're just um, doing so as a polemic. In other words, uh, this is usually called the trope of the true Brahmin, that Buddhists would say, you know, oh, the Buddha, Buddha was a Brahmin or enlightened folk or Brahmins uh, to sort of denigrate, you know, socially those who are Brahmins. And I say that, I argue that, although that does seem to have become the case eventually, I think early on they just were calling themselves Brahmins because they thought that they were Brahmins. Um, and, and I make the argument that, that there is precedent for that in the Vedic texts. Um, chapter five, the Brahmin is the head of the household uh, that's where I look closely at the Apastamba Dharma Sutra, um, which uh, I argue um, holds the key for understanding how uh, the more reactionary forces of this time uh, arrogated the, the the category Brahman to themselves. In other words, what I say, what, what I argue is that in this Dharma Sutra, what uh, what they're trying to accomplish is a separation of the category Brahman from celibate renunciation and instead tying it to birth. Um, Then uh, chapter six, this is where I get to be more diachronic. Um, And and this has to do with an issue of uh, interpretation, mainly in the the early Buddhist scriptures. Um, I I try to show that that the passages I've been looking at earlier in which the ideal Buddhist person is called a Brahmin uh, 
is which I argue that 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 is meant somewhat literally that that they didn't just mean that as a polemic. I try to show that over time that this changed, and you can show that by looking at successive layers of early commentary and see that whereas originally passages would just say, you know, the person who is enlightened, I call a Brahmin or something along those lines, then like a story will be added to say like, oh, the Buddha saw some, you know, Brahmin by birth uh, uh, who was making outrageous claims and uh, then he uttered this verse, you know, thus making it into a polemic, a contrast between the, the Buddha Brahmin and the, uh, and the, the Brahmin by birth. Um, and then last of all, in, in chapter seven, losing an argument by focusing on uh, uh, being right, um, I uh, also look at some Buddhist texts, which um, I call encounter dialogues. These are texts in which uh, the Buddha encounters uh, a Brahmin, by birth that is, uh, a representative of what I would call neo-Brahminism, somebody who uh, claims uh, that, you know, there is a Varna system, that uh, Brahmins are determined by birth, that Brahmins are superior to all other classes, uh, and usually who also claim that, that the householder lifestyle is best and has some sort of debate with them. Um, I argue that these texts actually uh, were uh, indicative of how uh, the neo-Brahmanical movement it was successful in irrigating the category to themselves because these texts actually basically ended up getting giving sort of free press to them which was not reciprocated you don't have you know like in the dharma sutras texts about encounters with buddhist monks and debates with them right uh and on the other hand in a narrative fashion it, it sets up uh uh just in terms of the narrative an opposition between one person who identifies only as a Brahmin and another person who's defending the Shramana movement and therefore is automatically sort of cast as a Shramana other. And so I, so I argue that the, the, these narratives serve to reinforce the sense that Brahman and Shramana were separate, even though that was not the point that they were trying to make. The point they were trying to make was actually that, you know, essentially that Shramanas are Brahmins, but, but by, by their very narrative structure, they reinforce the opposite person's side. Mm. So uh, I'm going to ask a, a question. I'm, new, I'm going to present a teeny bit of context first so that our listeners can understand what's at stake here. So we, we consider uh, generally uh, scholars of Indian religion, scholars and teachers of Indian religion, um, consider um, the Jains and the Buddhists as revolutionary insofar as they dispense with the Vedic revelation, the, the Sanskrit language eventually, uh, caste. Caste is huge. So um, this may be well internalized by folks like you and I, but the idea is that, well, well, well Brahmanical Hinduism, a Brahmana is the member of the highest uh, echelon of the caste system whose role it is to mm. preserve knowledge and perform uh, right. priestly ritual duties. And so is what you're saying then that these early Buddhists that considered themselves Brahmins, would you say that they retained their caste or would you say that that, does, that distinction itself doesn't apply looking back? Mm. Um. I, I, I lean to the to the second of, of what you said that the distinction doesn't apply. The, the issue of caste, Raj, is, is so complicated. Um, Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, for one thing, there's the distinction between caste per se, which is extremely complicated, uh, and class. Um, class being the the usually considered the more proper translation of varna. So there are four classical varnas or classes, and then the caste systems of India um, are are usually much more complicated and related to varna in a very complicated and often contested way. Um, So the question would be, you know, in the period that I'm talking about, to what extent is caste operative? Um, And, uh, and, 
affected by um, uh, Buddhism or becoming a Buddhist or, or, or so forth. Um, that's, how, that's something that I really deal with directly uh, in my book, which, yeah, I don't deal with, with caste directly, and, and I don't feel like I'm enough of an expert on the issue of the history of caste to, to really comment in a lot of detail about it, um, uh, except to, to say that I think that the, the um, certain aspects of the, the antiquity of, a, say, a rigid caste system are, 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 are sometimes exaggerated. Um, certainly in the Vinaya, which is a, a, a branch of the early Buddhist scriptures uh, that deals with monastic discipline. There are rules that seem to indicate that something like caste uh, was um, a social reality at the time that, the, that te those texts were composed uh, because there are rules basically preventing uh, discrimination on the basis of caste. For, for, in other words, you're not supposed to respect those distinctions when somebody has been ordained into the Sangha. Um, I don't find that to be, uh, because w what I study in my book is more the, 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 the sutta literature, so the narrative literature of the, of the Buddhist scriptures, which is a little bit earlier. Um, I don't find the same questions about caste to be as pervasive a theme there. Um, I find more often the issue of the Varna system, which, which does show up frequently in the, what I call encounter dialogues. In other words, uh, suttas in which the, the Buddha in, encounters a, you know, a proponent, a proponent of neo-Brahmanism and, and uh, debates with him. And, and, and they're, they're, they'll debate the, the validity of the Varna system. And, and basically, you know, what the Buddha will say in, in every case is that, like, uh, what are you talking about? This Vardhana system that you claim is operative has no relationship to social reality. Um, uh, but yeah, so so caste, however, does seem to have become uh, a concern for Buddhists a little bit later on. In in the, I don't know what to say. It doesn't show up at all in the suttas. I'm, it's not coming to my mind right away, but certainly it does show up in the in the Vinaya. So these early Buddhists who would have uh, self-identified as as brahmanas. Um, they wouldn't necessarily be upholding the same kind of um, Varana system that we think of as in, in operation now. Um, you mean at the time that the, the Buddhist suttas were written? The, yeah, the, the, the correct. Or, they or then, yeah, those Buddhists of, yeah. of the neo-Brahmanism era that you're talking about, those Buddhists right. who identified as Brahmanas, they wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily be upholding um, sort of the Varna system we think of now in terms of Brahmana, Kshatriyas, etc. Um, well, wait, so, so you mean if a Brahmin converted to Buddhism? Yes. So, yeah, so, okay. so, so the Buddhists, uh, the, or, so the Buddhists that identified as Brahmins. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, I see. In yeah, the yeah, period yeah. then, if they're identifying as Brahmins, Right, right, just right. just to tease this out a bit, right? Sure, sure, sure. The Buddhist, oh no, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So the Buddhist conception of I I, I understand what you're saying now. <laughs> this is part of why that my the, the topic of my book is d difficult to discuss because the, the the word Brahman becomes very confusing after a while. Um, so yeah, so, so the early Buddhists who were uh, insofar as they were claiming to be Brahmins, um, they uh, uh, yeah, they certainly were not were not uh, advocating the Varna system at all. Yeah, they they were not advocating the Varna. Uh, they they were um, uh, and, and it seems that the Jains were doing exactly the same thing, uh, you know, claiming uh, Brahmanhood not on the basis of birth but on the basis of undergoing Brahmacharya. Um, and there's a, a a fairly well, there are a few passages from Vedic texts that I that I uh, uh, refer to in the book in which um, there seems to be some indication of an older conception of uh, a a, a um, person becoming a Brahmin, and I think that this is what that they were. Uh, this is the strand of the tradition that they were picking up on. That that through their practice, they they created Brahmins, right? Um, and uh, and 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 their practice, of course, was one of celibate renunciation. So yeah, it had nothing to do with birth. They they were not interested in the Varna system, right? So the Buddhist. 
it, yeah, the Buddhists ridiculed the varna system. Exactly. So when I say ridiculed, I don't mean to, I don't mean that they criticize it in the sense that like say you know uh, uh, you know Americans today criticize racism or something like that. I mean they ridicule it as like this has nothing to do with reality. That kind of ridicule. Right, and so and this is what I'm teasing out. So the so the early Buddhists of that era, they would mm-hmm. identify as being uh, brahmanas. Not mm-hmm. in the sense of what we think of today in terms right. of uh, right. this this Vedic uh, social institution, right. Right. but in the sense of um, the Brahmana is the learned one, the wise one. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is fascinating, right? It's it's absolutely right. fascinating to take a word that is a keystone to uh, what we would call now is maybe the caste system, and this mm. word is sort of either. Um, one could even say there's a renovation in uh, play here. Yeah, so it's like uh, the true the true Brahmana, the true Brahmin isn't someone who was born to certain parents. There's somebody who understands mm. the world, right. understands reality, understands truth, right. and that could very well be uh, a, a follower of the Buddha, for example. Right. right. So this is uh, I'm asking these questions to tease it out because uh, um, sure. The, uh, um, in sort of presenting the opposite view of what your book is arguing, it really shows uh, the importance or the importance in the sense of the contrast. It shows how it shows how um, novel or against the grain of our understanding this, this mm. your argument is. So this has been uh, fascinating. I think we've taken um, <laughs> we've taken enough of your time for one day. I do want to ask before we close, um, what. Uh, what are you working on now? What's what's the next project? Sure. Um, uh, I'm working on several things, uh, but in terms of something that's fairly different uh, and a major project that I've been working on for a few years now, actually, uh, that goes beyond the work that's in this book. Um, uh, this is actually something not in South Asia. It's in Southeast Asia. Um, I've been studying uh, the royal court Brahmins of Thailand. Uh, which is really interesting to me because Thailand is a um, is a Buddhist country, uh, and actually this is related to what got me interested in the topic that I ended up uh, doing for this book, uh, because many years ago when I first got to grad school, I started you know I was going to Thailand, and and I went there because it was Buddhist. I wanted to you know I was studying Buddhism. I wanted to to see a living Buddhist culture, and uh, and I was amazed at how much quote unquote Hindu stuff I kept seeing everywhere. You know, uh, Hindu gods that were worshipped or had shrines to them, uh, Hindu imagery and Thai art, including a, uh, a a vast mural of the Ramakien, which is the the Thai version of the Ramayana, around the most important Buddhist temple uh, in Bangkok, uh, Wat Pakeo, the, the the temple of the Emerald Buddha, and uh, um, and these Brahmins who work for the Thai king. Uh, so there are currently 16 of them. They have a very small temple uh, uh, right down the street from City Hall in Bangkok. Uh, and they have um, outside of that temple a giant swing, which anybody who's been to Bangkok has probably seen or heard of, um, that they used to use in their rituals, um, although they don't use it anymore. Um, and what's fascinating about these Brahmins is that they are... Um, uh, they are now completely acculturated Thai people, um, uh, but they were originally Brahmins from India who um, migrated uh, probably from Tamil Nadu uh, several hundred years ago. Um, and uh, they perform rituals on behalf of the palace, including the uh, uh, consecration ritual for a new king, which they're supposed to do, I believe, in May. Uh, for King uh, Rama the tenth, the current king, uh, his father passed away uh, a couple years ago. Um, uh, but they do an annual ritual called the Triyampawai Triyampawai, which involves the, the recitation of Tamil Bhakti hymns. Uh, and when I found this out, I was just like completely flabbergasted by this and fascinated by it. So um, this is sort of an ongoing project of mine. I've I've published a little bit about it, uh, but I'm hoping to publish more sort of a history of of these Brahmins, how they ended up in Thailand, and um, what role they play in Thai religion, which, as I said, is overwhelmingly Buddhist.
It's fascinating. Um, this uh, I was in I was in Bangkok very briefly uh, in 2005. Mm. Every three years, right. there's the World Sanskrit Conference. So it was last. Oh right, right. In 2018, it was actually in Vancouver, but before that, in 20, 20 sorry, 2015, it was in Bangkok. Yeah. So I had a right. uh, some time. Um, I didn't travel about, but I had some time to to soak up the culture in between panels and whatnot. Right. And and it was a deeply fascinating culture. You mm-hmm. see elements of Hinduism throughout. Um, I believe that at the airport in um, in Bangkok, you have the largest yeah. statue of a what one thinks of as a sort of um, uh, uh, a quintessential uh, Indian Hindu myth of the churning of the ocean between the right. gods and right. the demons and the gods of the of the right, Vedic right, sky, right. essentially. Right, right, right. And right. Uh, it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I feel that. I feel that. Um, both uh, both the public and, and students, therefore of 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 Indian religions, sort of have this this caricature of Buddhism as exclusively philosophical and Hinduism mm-hmm. as ritualistic and polytheistic. And the truth is that I mean they're both oh. both, and it's just a rich um, yeah yeah interplay. Yeah, Raj, let me just say that is a complete myth that is based on a projection of uh, uh, anti-Catholic tropes. Uh, from the colonial period, basically, uh, in, in which which work to Hinduism's Hinduism's disfavor. Uh, it's just a projection of sort of like battles between Catholicism and and Protestantism. Pro- Protestantism has nothing to do with reality. Hmm. Well, on the ground, it appears that uh, snakes and uh, mongooses can get along just fine, and <laughs> Buddhists could have been could have identified as 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 Brahmins, and who knows what. So. Right. Um, it has been a pleasure speaking today with uh, Dr. Nathan McGovern, uh, who is a assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater on his uh, new publication, The Snake and the Mongoose. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Raj. I appreciate it. <laughs>